Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the sixth episode of Running Mates. I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. How's it going? This is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks, and we talk about who they maybe should have chosen instead. It's been a while since we've had a, uh, a clean slate with no incumbent running for president. Since 1968, in fact. But the 80s are almost over, and Reagan is on his way out. I'm actually very glad we're done with Reagan. <laughs> it's been, we've like talked about it in like almost every episode. Yeah. Uh, anyways, what will America do with its fresh slate in 1988? Let's find out. Let's set the scene. 1988, President Ronald Wilson Reagan is on his second term, during which he's escalated the war on drugs, totally ignored the AIDS crisis, failed to address apartheid in South Africa, and been engulfed in Iran-Contra. But these are all F- things. Funding for AIDS <laughs> research doubled every year of Reagan's presidency. Okay, from like $1 to $2. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, nonetheless, uh, remains popular towards the end of his presidency, but there are significant critiques for failing to address many of these very human issues mm. under the surface. The federal budget has also ballooned as he uh, sort of ratcheted up military spending, um, and despite the Black Monday crash in uh, 1987, the economy is still looking pretty good overall. Democrats uh, captured full control of Congress back in the 1986 midterms by winning the Senate, and they started to push back against Reagan. They derailed or borked one of his Supreme Court picks, and they've been highlighting some of the more problematic sides of Reagan's policies. But still, even despite some of these scandals and perhaps inhumane policy choices, Reagan is popular, and Democrats definitely have a tough road ahead of them if they're going to get the White House after eight years of Republican control. Why don't you tell us about what happened in the Republican primary this year, Mike? Okay, so as Ron Reagan's vice president, who, despite these sort of problematic policies in some way, was still pretty popular, and George Bush being his vice president was considered the odds-on frontrunner in the race. A more moderate man than Reagan, he positioned himself vowing for a kinder, gentler nation, and enters into the primary. There's a lot of big-ish names, big in the the running meets world at least, Uh, people like Alexander Haig, Paul Laxalt and Jack Kemp have entered the primary as well, but it basically ends up becoming a three-man race between Bush, Kansas Senator and 1976 vice presidential nominee Bob Dole, and televangelist Pat Robertson. And even though Bush is a favorite, he absolutely just, like, bombs in Iowa. He comes in third behind Dole, who's in first, and Robertson, who's in second, which, which gets Bush worried a little bit. And Dole does end up leading in New Hampshire, but then the Bush campaign launches this very aggressive ad campaign that tax law is a tax raiser. If you remember, he actually did work on the food stamps program with McGovern. Bush ends up picking up the endorsement from New Hampshire Governor John H. Sununu, uh, which helped him win the state's primary and pick up momentum that let him coast the rest of the way through. Cool. On the Democratic side, the Democratic Party, you know, having lost big in 1984, they're looking for a more moderate, perhaps more charismatic champion this go-around. And they, they maybe have a chance against H.W. Bush, someone who's perhaps not as charismatic as Reagan. It turns its eyes initially to New York Governor Mario Cuomo, who had wowed everyone, of course, with his keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention four years ago. Cuomo declines to run. Gary Hart, uh, Colorado senator, fresh off his narrow loss in the 1984 primary against Walter Mondale, 
for the Democratic nomination, emerges as the frontrunner. However, in mid-1987 or so, his campaign quickly derailed once an extramarital affair was uncovered and no clear frontrunner existed going into the first few primaries, which is sort of unusual. He was joined by uh, Missouri Representative Dick Gephardt, Illinois Senator Paul Simon, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, Tennessee Senator Al Gore, and civil rights leader and Baptist minister Jesse Jackson. They're all kind of the main names duking it out. And then Gary Hart unwithdrew from the race (laughs) and got back in. Not that he did very well, but between the six of them, he was the only one to not win a state in this primary. (laughs) Dukakis uh, accumulates the most states and delegates and becomes the presumptive nominee by late April after some big wins in Wisconsin and New York. Uh, with Jackson, the runner-up, going into the Democratic convention. So now we'll talk about the reality, who Bush and Dukakis chose as their running mates. Uh, I'll start with Dukakis. So going into the convention, Jesse Jackson's supporters at first insisted that since Jesse Jackson was in second place in delegates, that he was entitled to the vice presidential spot. Dukakis was like, uh, no. (laughs) And announced Texas Senator Lloyd Benson, who we've talked about several times on this show, as his running mate. Ohio Senator and former astronaut John Glenn, who we've also talked about a lot, had been thought to be another top choice. Uh, But Benson was selected uh, to attempt to secure Texas for Democrats and make it competitive against a presidential candidate for the Republicans from there, Bush, of course, being from Texas. Because Benson was considered more moderate than the perceived kind of northeastern liberal that Dukakis was, some felt that having an experienced and respected statesman as Benson on the ticket did disservice to Dukakis, however, because it made the ticket bottom-heavy, and many saw Benson as more qualified to be president than Dukakis. So Bush wouldn't have that problem. He would choose Indiana <laughs> Senator Dan Quayle. Quayle's nomination wasn't announced until the second night of the convention, and it quickly captured everybody's attention because it began to seem like he really hadn't been vetted very well. In fact, this whole process was like not very well handled by Bush and his campaign. They, in kind of like an old-fashioned move, they were expecting to not announce their VP pick until like the very last day of the convention. But eventually they became the talk of the convention. That was speculation all over the place about who it would be. So they ended up pulling the trigger on Quayle. He was chosen because he was young. He was, I believe, the first baby boomer on a ticket. He had very telegenic good looks. Um, In the words of Reagan, he contained energy and enthusiasm. But he, he kind of stumbles out of the gate. He gives a round of pretty poor interviews during the convention where he's asked about, in the words of Tom Brokaw, the three quail problems. Never good to have three problems named after you when you're a vice presidential candidate. The first of those was about his experience. He was only 41, which is actually kind of nuts. He's pretty young. And he'd only served two terms in the House and was in the middle of a second term in the Senate, so not a ton of experience, at least relative to most people running for president. The second was speculation that he had joined the Indiana National Guard during the Vietnam War to avoid being sent overseas. And not only that, but that friends of his family may have pulled some strings to get him into the National Guard, too. Third was that he t- a golf trip he took to Florida with two House colleagues and a lobbyist and future Playboy cover model named Paula Parkinson, who in an interview with Playboy said that he made advances on her. And by the way, his own father said that while Quayle did not have the grades to be admitted into Indiana Law School, Quayle marched up to the school's dean and persuaded him to let him in. He, like, I assume his father assumes, like, isn't this just, like, doesn't he such, like, a little bit of a go-getter? It's like, sounds like he wasn't qualified to do something, and then just, like, sweet-talked somebody into letting him do it. I like so, his father just threw him out of exactly, the Exactly. Yeah. like, oh, my son's a little dumb. Yeah. yeah. And his, his, he came from a pretty well-off family. They were, like, owners of the Indianapolis Star, hmm. which is the biggest newspaper in Indiana. So he had some baggage, needless to say. 
Okay. So, Quayle and Benson, they march on to the vice presidential debate, which uh, you've probably heard of in one way or another. It's somewhat legendary, if for just one reason. Quayle attempted to address his experience gaps by comparing himself to one John F. Kennedy, also a political rookie when he was running for president. Benson shot back at Quayle, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. This to thunderous applause. Quayle spent most of the time during the debate, however, avoiding confronting Benson at all, and instead just attacking Dukakis for being too liberal. But the debate kind of was the first time that attention started to be paid to the possibility that perhaps Dan Quayle is just like woefully unprepared to become president at all. This incident and others kind of reduced Dan Quayle to a comedy punchline as comedians started hammering him on his youth and inexperience. SNL went so far as to have Quayle routinely portrayed by an actual child in their sketches. The general election consisted largely of Bush attempting to portray Dukakis as a liberal Northeasterner. A lot of, a lot of, <laughs> they're really pushing that message. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One with like think tank foreign policy views and this Ivy League background. A New York Times reporter called Bush out for this, noting, wasn't this a case of the pot calling the kettle elite? Bush a Yale graduate, of course. Yeah. From Connecticut. Yes. <laughs> Nonetheless, when Election Day rolls around, the bush Quail ticket won 40 states, including Benson's own Texas. Though Benson did get a minor consolation prize when he received one vote for president from a West Virginia faithless elector who flipped the names and put Dukakis as his vice president. Bush did very well in the South and in the suburbs, and narrowly held on to a last bastion of states that would move permanently to the Democrats after this election, like Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, and California. After this election, what happened to Benson? He stayed in the Senate for a little bit. He was reelected that same year, 1988. 1988 is the last Senate election in Texas that a Democrat has won. Beto, pour one out. <laughs> he considered running for president in 1992, but he declined, and he ended up becoming Secretary of the Treasury under President Bill Clinton. He was instrumental in the assault rifle ban and the passage of NAFTA, both of which are no longer with us. Yes. <laughs> Though he only served in the position until 1994, he was responsible for much of the Clinton economic plan, including a $500 billion reduction in the deficit. Um, and when British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, famously very conservative and a friend of Reagan's, was asked which Democrats she liked, Benson's name was the one that she said. Uh, he suffered two strokes in the late 1990s, but President Clinton awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And even six years after his departure as Secretary of the Treasury, Clinton thanked him and singled him out during his year 2000 State of the Union for the economic progress under his tenure. Benson then passed away in 2006. So Quayle, of course, would be elected vice president, and a lot of the problems he encountered with the campaign job began to manifest while he was in office. Uh, as far as sort of neutral slash positive things he did, he, you know, he, he was named chair of the National Space Council, who made some strides and announced very ambitious plans to send missions to Mars and things like that. But he's more well known for doing things like claiming that the TV character Murphy Brown's decision to become a single mother was, quote, mocking the importance of fathers. In the words of Wikipedia, he was generally uh, widely ridiculed in the media and many in the general public, both in the U.S. and overseas, as an intellectual lightweight and an incompetent individual. <laughs> Uh, the most famous example of this is probably while he was moderating a spelling bee at a middle school in New Jersey where the word was potato and the kids spelled it correctly, P-O-T-A-T-O. And uh, Dan Quayle said, no, 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 that's wrong. You forgot the E at the end of that. <laughs> he claims it was written down on the card that way, but who actually knows? 
He and Bush would lose re-election in 1992 to Bill Clinton and Al Gore, but he did flirt with the possibility of running for governor of Indiana in 1996. He did end up running for the Republican presidential nomination in 2000, but withdrew pretty early on after coming eighth in Iowa straw poll. Uh, he eventually moved to Arizona, get into investment banking, and flirted again with running for governor this time of Arizona in 2002. His son would have actually ended up serving one term as an Arizona congressman. And the most recent reason Quayle was in the news, well, it was because he's now the subject of a investigation by the Irish government, SEC, FBI, and a U.S. attorney's office for allegedly using his office to expedite a real estate deal that would use state funds in Northern Ireland. Cool. Seems like a really smart guy. <laughs> All right, on to the main bit. Uh, so we've each come to the table with five alternative picks for Dukakis's running mate and five for Bush's running mate. We'll talk about them. Yeah. You want to take the Democrats first with your number five pick for Dukakis, Mike? Yes. Yeah, so I have Governor Mario Cuomo of New York. You may have heard of his son. He's also governor right now, and his other son, who's on CNN. Uh, Mario Cuomo is kind of like a liberal icon, right? He gave a very popular speech. He gave the keynote address at the 1984 Democratic National Convention, um, where he criticized Reagan a lot. And his, the famous line is, Mr. President, you ought to know that this nation is more a tale of two cities than it is just a shining city on a hill. But, like, despite his liberal reputation, he was kind of a fiscal conservative. He balanced the budget. In New York, he got New York its highest credit rating of the decade, and he fought the Reagan administration's attempts to eliminate federal income tax deductibility for local and state income taxes. He was involved in lots of child health care initiatives and New York transportation initiatives, and he, he had a little bit of a law and order streak in him, too. He did expand prison. He expanded the prison system in New York um, and, and sort of gave more money to law enforcement in the state. Uh, which, which I guess could hurt most of the liberals. But my, my thinking here is that, like, you know, you think of Dukakis, and you think of things like the Willie Horton ad, which was this ad that was basically like, well, as governor from Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, you know, it was like prison furloughs. He instituted a lot more of them. And one of them was given to this guy named Willie Horton, who was let out of prison and then, like, eventually murders some people. You know, it, it was basically like, if Michael Dukakis is president, all the prisoners will go free and kill everybody. My, th- my thinking is that Mario Cuomo would give Dukakis a little bit of credibility in, in terms of sort of law and order and being, like, tough and all of that. Again, you know, I do think, like, maybe liberals wouldn't be super wild about him. He, he had a kind of reputation of, like, abandoning liberals when they needed him most. Like, he never really wanted to run for president. Would, would he be viewed as a Northeastern liberal, do you think? I, I think he may have, but I think that... This is, like, a very qualitative analysis. But a Northeastern liberal from, like, Massachusetts is very different than a Northeastern liberal from New York City. Okay. You would argue he's not. You're saying he has kind of more conservative policies. Yeah, I think so. He's more moderate than Dukakis, at least as far as what I know about Dukakis. (laughs) According to what George H.W. Bush tells me about Dukakis. (laughs) Exactly, right. And I think it's a reputation thing, right? It's like, I think when you're, like, governor of New York, you have to sort of, like, you have to deal with the largest city in the country, which means getting more involved in sort of, like, law and order issues. And it just requires you to be more, a little more combative and, like, tougher. Hmm. Maybe just the accent, I don't know. But, yeah, that, that that's kind of my thinking, is that he, he might bring the ticket to the middle bit. And he's, like, you know, re- relatively popular and uh, from a big state. It, again, doesn't give the Democrats any regional balance as far as the map goes, but... Yeah. And it's close, yeah, it's a close state, too, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, like, four, decided by, like, 4% this year. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you put a governor so bu- at the bottom of your list, because I put, I, like, very deliberately chose no governors, because I think having a governor gov- governor ticket is a mistake. It's never been done in, like, the modern era. Mm-hmm. And there's never been a ticket where there's zero federal experience either. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, what's the case for that in 1988, where Democrats haven't been in control of the executive branch for eight years like what's the case to have 
Is there a case to have like a double outsider candidacy? I mean, yeah, you look at Reagan and his cabinet and you're like, well, I mean, because Bush is the ultimate insider. You just double down on the outsideriness. But if they're attacking Dukakis for being like ill-qualified... And clearly, they, then Mario Cuomo was like, I like the state I'm in charge in is larger than most of the other states combined. You know, I basically run a small country. Well, maybe it contrasts <laughs> against Quail, too. It's like, oh, yeah, that's actually be way more qualified than Dave Quail. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's why I wouldn't go for a governor this year. I agree. Yeah, I try to stay away from governors with one other exception. Um, I Yeah, I do think you need to balance two caucus out with a more experienced Ideally, a senator. But Mario Cuomo is a big name. He's a guy people like him. He is. He should have run for president this year. Yeah. I think. Cool. Uh, My number five, I went with Paul Simon, senator from Illinois. (laughs) Guy from Simon and Garfunkel? (laughs) Yeah. He's known for his distinctive bow tie and horned rimmed glasses look. I I don't know. He just looks like someone who would work at the Brookings Institution or something. Illinois went for Bush by only 2%. And Simon, my my thesis here is he's kind of like the wonk Bush equivalent on the Democratic side. With the and the federal experience helps Dukakis. He's like a fiscal conservative. He's like very conscious about budget issues, perhaps a little like nerdy about them. And he's like generally knowledgeable about foreign policy. He's like fashioned himself like a New Deal style Democrat from the Midwest. Maybe like he can remind people of what Democrats can do when they're given the chance. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder though it's like because I, I feel like Dukakis also comes off as a little bit of a nerd and so I yeah. wonder if you need to like balance out Dukakis's nerdiness with like it like kind of like a toughness almost like I know I'm kind of playing into like the mm. Bush campaign's hands yeah. but like I'm just I'm just giving I'm just like buying into the whole the Atwater thing I think you, you need like someone who, see, who comes off maybe like stronger I, I, I don't have anything there's, there's never been a nerd nerd ticket <laughs> exactly <laughs> I don't really have anything against Paul Simon but you know, some some of his music can sound derivative. No, um, I just <laughs> I, I don't think he wins uh, Dukakis the election, but I think he wins him more electoral votes. I don't. Yeah, actually... sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't see why not. I think you know it, it could help Dukakis in the Midwest certainly, and Benson prob- didn't help him in the South. Yeah, right. It doesn't That's matter. That's true. That's true. He could probably win at least mm-hmm. Illinois. You see that he beat your boy Charles Percy. I did. In the I did. My boy. He's going to keep picking the person from that Senate seat. Yeah, yeah. the transitive property. The real question is, does that become Barack Obama's Senate seat? Oh, I don't know. No, I think it's Dick Durbin's. That's weird how you could just figure that out. Um, oh, it's because it says so on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> I'll cut that. I want people to think I'm smart. <laughs> cool. On to your number four. I went with David Pryor, senator from Arkansas and former governor of Arkansas. He was like a pro- progressive uh, for his time, certainly. He was sort of in, you know, the, the 60s and the 50s and, and when segregation was a more prominent issue. He was considered the progressive alternative to specifically Orville Fabus, who was the very hardline segregationist governor of Arkansas. Pryor actually owned a newspaper that went after Fabus pretty hard. He was like the proto-Bill Clinton in some ways, not quite as liberal, but, you know, he, he his, his sort of progressive views on race helped. There was like a big three of like new Arkansas politicians. It was Clinton prior and, and the, the last one's escaping me while in congress he worked on very exciting issues like aging um which hey it's never bad to whenever old people they vote uh, as well as taxpayers rights he, he wanted really you know he wanted to make sure that taxpayer dollars were being spent well so there's a bit of a fiscal conservative edge there you know my, my thinking here is that like he's a guy who is liberal in some ways but like you know liberal in the way he's like look you know it's kind of like we just, we just watched that west wing episode where it's the debate 
and Matt Santos is like liberals led the civil rights movement and gave women the right to vote and all of that. Like, you, I, I think you could like have David Pryor reframe what liberalism means as, as the vice presidential candidate, and he, he's he's very experienced. He was not he served, he served both in executive and legislative positions. And, you know, like, he, he appointed lots of African-Americans and women to state positions when he was governor. You know, he might have some clout in those communities as well. Do you know his son became a senator? Mark Pryor. Yeah. Do you know who he lost to? Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton. <laughs> yeah. We're big fans of Tom Cotton. <laughs> no, just, just kidding. Well, so, yeah, I know, like, almost nothing about this guy. Arkansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's small and very red. Like, what? who do you think, what states does this guy help flip? Maybe the South. I know it didn't work for Benson, but, right. like, my point is, is that, like, I, I do think looking at the map, Dukakis wins exactly 10 states. He needs, like, help all the way he can. My thinking is that this is just, like, it's a guy with experience. It's a guy who's, like, a centrist but has, like, a lot of cred in fighting segregation, which is not an issue during this time. But the, the Saul South wasn't that long ago, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, Clinton would end up dipping into the South in 92 and 96. Why not try and, like, fast forward that process? He, he, he's, you know, these states are very red, and yet he was governor and senator from them, and, like, won pretty handily. Yeah. So clearly he knows something that people like there, which I feel like is a thing I use for, like, a lot of choices. But I think, you know, I think that's, that's how it works. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, along with governors, I tried to shy away from the South, because I just feel like if Benson couldn't make the cut, mm-hmm. who could? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think this guy has over Benson is, I guess, my, my question. I don't know that he does. Like, I don't think Benson was, like, a terrible choice, honestly. Right. He just, he's, he's got a resume. He, he's, he was on kind of a little bit of the front lines when it came to... He wasn't, like, marching and... You know, he was, like, fighting segregation through his newspaper. He, he, he's, he's, got, he, he's got an appealing biography, I think. Maybe not as much flash as a senator because he's working on, like, aging issues. Mm. But I don't know. I think it works. Dukakis is flashy enough. <laughs> cool. All right, for my number four, I went with Les Aspen. Uh, not Southern. I don't know why I did that. He's a representative from Wisconsin since 1971. He's the chair of the House Armed Services Committee. He's not afraid to critique the Department of Defense. He also initially supported Reagan on Iran-Contra, which caused him to lose his chairmanship, which then he ran for and won back three weeks later and proceeded to serve on the committee investigating the Iran-Contra affair that summer. He would, of course, become Secretary of Defense later on by Clinton. He's just a big, like, defense name and, like, a investigatory name, uh, armed services name. And Wisconsin's a close state. Like, I, I, the, the, the Midwest is, is a region I think Dukakis can put in play. He clearly can't really do it in the South. If we're assuming, like, Benson or even maybe Pryor are, like, his strongest picks in the South... He can't really put it in play, but he might be able to get some Midwestern votes, right? And I think Dukakis' big weakness is this perception that he's just, like, a governor who doesn't understand Washington and doesn't understand, like, foreign policy and, like, the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I do think, actually, the stated strategy of the Dukakis campaign was, like, to win around the Great Lakes, basically, mm. because that gave you, like, some pretty decent-sized states, and that was, like, they knew they didn't have a, much of a chance in, like, the southeast and... and in like the west and the plains hmm. it's, it's a good pick i really don't have much to say you know he was he did support funding the contras so i, I wonder how but, that plays don't but he can say like but then i was on the like investigatory committee yeah about this yeah like, i yeah once i discovered more about it i was wrong turns mm-hmm. out reagan's bad it, it, it like exposes reagan's key witness i my like 
first choice is a more clear example of this, but it like exposes the Reagan administration and therefore Bush's like kind of key scandal mm-hmm. going into the election. Yeah, I think that's fair. He's a good pick. Cool. All right, moving on. Okay, I picked Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas. Ever heard of him? He's also a young progressive, successful in the southern state. But his whole thing, right, is that he is a new Democrat, quote-unquote, right? And my view is that he's going to be the bridge. You can use the Dukakis-Clinton ticket as the bridge from the sort of Carter-Mondale-era liberals to the new Democrats like Clinton, who advocated for things like welfare reform and for smaller government. And he's also, like, pro-death penalty, which Dukakis was not. He does take some slightly more socially conservative uh, stances on things like law and order. Hello, crime bill. My thinking here is that, like, youth and excitement, you know, it, it's Dan Quayle, but with experience and, and with quality. You know, again, like, the governor-governor thing, I think, does hurt. But I also think that it, it's insane to me that, like, 32-year-old Bill Clinton was able to win the governorship of Arkansas in 1978. Mm. It just strikes me as a place that wouldn't be very hospitable to a guy like a Yale law school grad who was kind of anti-Vietnam and who had this like very outspoken feminist wife. I, I think that again, like there's he, he knows something there about how to, how to win over voters who and you know he, yeah he would lose in 1980 but then he would win in 82. Like the thing is like he has like proven electoral wins because for a long time Arkansas elected their governors every two years. So not only did he win in 78, granted he lost in 80, but he ended up winning in 82. He won in 84 when everybody voted for Ronald Reagan, and he won, of course, again in 86. God, Arkansas should really not do those every two-year elections. They don't anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the governor-governor thing you kind of already mentioned. I do wonder if, like, like his, his 1988, like, DNC speech is, like, famously very bad and long, and, like, people only applauded when he said he was, like, almost done. Like, I do wonder, like, maybe he's not ready yet. Maybe he's still, Could like, be. working. People didn't think he was going to run for president, too. Yeah. But he declined. I, I like what you said about, like, the bridge. It's like, he is definitely a bridge to kind of a newer, more modern Democratic Party, whereas Dukakis kind of seems more old school. It's like, Bill Clinton is definitely just, like, a better style, more charismatic, more, like, down-to-earth. People love to, like, gush about, like, oh, I could listen to Bill Clinton talk for hours. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about, like, Jimmy Carter as a pick for George McGovern. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. Jimmy Carter was kind of this bridge from, like, the New Deal Democrat to a modern for the 70s kind of Democrat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Arkansas thing kind of stays the same. I'm not sure if Bill Clinton helps you really win much in the region but he is probably way more charismatic than Pryor. yeah i would say i mean as far as i've never i've never met david Pryor, but <laughs> um that, that that's kind of his ml right is that he's, yeah. he's a good speaker yeah cool mm-hmm. i went with very similar to bill clinton al gore uh senator from tennessee and a house representative in tennessee before that He's a bit of a dynasty in Tennessee, as his father was also a long-serving senator. He ran in the 1988 Democratic primary. He's a self-described raging moderate. (laughs) I I should start using that. Uh, You know, at the time, he opposed federal funding for abortion. He was relatively pro-gun and anti-gay marriage. He had some arms control and armed services credentials. He's kind of a big name in technical development and incredibly intelligent on, like, technology, computers, and communication. I hear he invented the internet. He never said that. (laughs) This is a myth that he said that. He, <laughs> look it up. It's paraphrased. He wasn't saying he came up with it. Anyway, he's young. He's attractive. 
he's, he's modern, he's technical, and he's intelligent, but he's also like likable and moderate Democrat from the South. What else could you ask for if you're Dukakis, right? Yeah. I agree, and that's why I picked him <laughs> as my number one pick. You want, like, youth and enthusiasm, or energy enthusiasm, rather, for Quayle, and I think Al Gore gives that to you for the Democrats. And, like, he does bring the ticket to the middle, and I, I think you need charisma, too. This is kind of what I, I, I kind of stopped you before that, but have you ever, like, watched, like, some of, like, the Bush and Dukakis debates? Yeah. And you've seen, like, the very, the very famous thing where it's, like, Dukakis was anti-death penalty, and one of the uh, moderators says, you know, if your wife was murdered, would you want the death penalty to be applied to her murderer? Yeah. Which... It just like not like a good. I, I don't know. I have problems. Even though I'm like sometimes pro death penalty, I have like problems with that qu- line of questioning. But anyway, um, the the moderator is like kind of playing a tricky. Yeah, yeah. it's just like it's 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 like asking like, well, if there was if there was a time bomb that had five minutes to go off and you could only get the answer by torturing a terrorist, would you do it? It's like, well, okay. But like the 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 thing that killed him was his response, which was just like. No, I wouldn't, and because blah, blah, blah. But he didn't say it forcefully or, like, with much, like, confidence. He, he was very kind of... It, it just felt very flat and came off very cold, and people think that kind of, like, helped put the nail on the coffin for his campaign. Mm. And I think Clinton gives you a more charismatic response to that. Clinton has charisma, and I think Gore has some charisma as well. And, you know, Gore is also, like, a baby boomer, and he... Gore was in Vietnam. He Granted, he was a journalist for the military, but he served in Vietnam. He was there. And you're right, he's, he's a radio monitor, just a smart guy. He's just like, you know, he's like a Southern Kennedy or something, I don't know. And, and I think that, like, just build a bridge to the future, give him something fresh, and, and I think Al Gore is your best chance to do that if you're Michael Dukakis. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm not sure he helps get the win. Mm-hmm. But I do think he probably comes off more exciting than Benson mm-hmm. and more qualified than a lot of these other more exciting people that Dukakis could have chosen from, right? Yeah. Clinton's a governor. Cuomo's a governor. They're both very like charismatic, but mm-hmm. Gore has actually been there. He's got experience on the federal level, and he's also charismatic. Yeah. Um, and just clearly very proficient in all the things Dukakis is not. He's been in Congress since he was 29. Really? Yeah. <laughs> all right, we got time, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> We do. Don't uh, we like legally have time? Like, I'm 25. Yeah, you're so good. I'm eligible. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me a year. <laughs> cool. All right. Moving on to number two. I went with John Glenn. Do I even have to explain it at this point? I think I had him number one in both 76 and 84. So not in a row, but this is the third episode that I've had John Glenn. He is a senator from Ohio. Of course, he is a former astronaut. And. You know, he's got the military experience, he's got the space exploration experience. He's an American hero. You know, you think Dukakis is like a wimpy liberal. Well, how about this Marine veteran who went to space? How do you think about that bonafide actual American hero? It's like we said, you know, everyone thought Reagan was a cowboy, even though he actually wasn't. It's like, John Glenn's actually an astronaut. So try that on for size. Um, Yeah, John Glenn's my number two, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost redundant to talk about him. At this point, but it's just like, good God, mm-hmm. the Democrats really should have put John Glenn on some frickin' ticket at some frickin' point. And, and like, now is, like, a really good time to do that, because we've been putting him up on our, like, board for years, but now he has 14 years of Washington experience, but he never, like, screams insider. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't think of John Glenn as, like, a Washington insider, you think astronaut. Mm-hmm. Or, like, Ohio guy. Mm-hmm. But, I, so I think it works, like, Dukakis can kind of draw a line, it helps him in the Midwest, which is the area that he probably needed to win mm-hmm. yeah just put john glenn on a vice presidential ticket please mm-hmm. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, number one, you had Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Number one for me, I went with Sam Nunn. So he's a senator from Georgia since 1972. He's the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, which is a big deal. You're a big defense name from the South. He's moderate-leaning but still relatively liberal on key points that would prevent any kind of major ideological differences from Dukakis. But he's, but he's a heavy hitter on defense to alleviate Dukakis' perceived weaknesses there. He shows Southern Democrats that the party has not given up on them, this being a state that Carter, of course, won and is from. He has the right amount of Washington experience to balance Dukakis out, and on top of all of that, he also served on the Senate Select Committee on Secret Military Assistance to Iran and the Nicaraguan Opposition, the committee investigating the Reagan-Bush administration over Iran-Contra. It, like, draws a straight line to Bush's perhaps greatest weakness if they can, like, connect the dots. And I think putting none on the ticket allows, like, an arrow right there. Mm. So what states do you think he wins for <laughs> Dukaka? I, I don't know that he wins anything specifically, but I think he changed. He's... I, th- I kind of think he's the only one with him that changes the fundamental like, questions of the race. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're attacking Dukakis for being like, weak on military, weak on foreign policy, whereas like, no one's really going after Bush for Iran-Contra, and this kind of takes all the military stuff like totally away from the ticket. It's like, there is no question at all that this guy is incredibly qualified in defense issues and foreign policy. He is the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, for God's sake. And a Coast Guard reservist. Yes, but I, yeah, this guy is not, like, necessarily a statement. I think he's a fundamentals change. He mm-hmm. changes the fundamentals of the race. That's a good point, because you think about the other sort of famous campaign out during this time is the one of Michael Dukakis in the tank. Yeah, yeah. And where he just looks kind of goofy because he's, like, riding around in, like, a tank. Right, this guy would have said, don't go in the exactly. tank. Exactly. Or he would have gone in the tank and nobody was, looked like he knew what he was doing, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, um, You're right, and I do think there's a big point in this campaign is that it does, like, Dukakis just feels so much... It feels like Dukakis is playing so much defense, which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because Bush is the one who's been in the executive branch for the past eight years, really longer than that. Off, yeah. So really, he should be on the defensive more. I think you're right. I think putting Nunn on the ticket probably puts him on the defense a little bit more because Nunn, Nunn has the receipts, right? Right. You know, he, he knows he knows what's going on. He's in the investigations, and it definitely changes some of the dynamics. And, and you know, the perception of Dukakis is, is kind of milk toast. I think. Is, is is flipped a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, that's my number one. Okay. Cool. I mean, some trends for our people. We went mostly with senators. Mm-hmm. We had a couple governors on there. We're pretty resolved that he needed mostly federal experience. Yeah. Probably someone with, like, a bit of a military bend. Mm-hmm. Um, which Benson meets. Mm-hmm. As for people Dukakis actually considered, uh, so he gave Jesse Jackson a thought, uh, John Glenn, Florida Senator Bob Graham, Tennessee Senator Al Gore, Indiana Representative Lee Hamilton, and Missouri Rep Dick Gephardt. Let's move on to the Republican tickets. My number five pick is William Armstrong, Colorado Senator, and definitely a dark horse pick, but he's perhaps a charismatic nod to the Christian right. He's got a lot of state experience in Colorado, but then he went on to Congress where he was kind of uh, a big name in like conservative tax policies, and he promoted this Year of the Bible proclamation, which President Reagan did implement. He served on the Commission for Social Security Reform and was the only member of the commission to vote against their report. He imposed new work requirements for welfare folks. He's, he's very much like a, a Reagan policy. Like He's very behind all of that. And, and yeah, he's perhaps a nod to where Republicans will be by the 1994-96 period, 
but he's a bit like god heavy Mm -hmm. which i I think the republicans are going to start to be he's sort of this bridge between reagan and like gingrich if you will and i think bush's weakness certainly within his parties that he's perceived as too liberal and like this guy may not be like full-blown preacher or anything but he is a guy on the federal level who has you know, experience in very, like, Reagan-esque policies. Yeah, I, I get that. And uh, apparently his, his catchphrase was, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that was when he was president of Colorado Christian University. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, look, like, Bush came in third to a televangelist with literally zero political experience, Pat Robertson in Iowa. Right. So that, that's that's a base that's, that's looking to get involved. And, like, granted, I think they were pretty well into, like, the Republican corner at this point. But, like, think about it, like, you know, Carter himself was an evangelical and did pretty well amongst them in 76. You think of, like, George W. Bush as kind of, mm-hmm. like, a Christian conservative kind right, of guy. Yeah. I don't think you think of no, 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 no. I don't. No, yeah. not at all. And so, yeah, I think it probably helps Bush with, like, the cultural conservatives, I would say, which are starting to become a force. Better than quail, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. I went with Thad Cochran, Senator from Mississippi. I remember I controversially chose him as my number two pick for Gerald Ford in 76 when he was just, like, a two-term congressman at that point. But by now, he's an established name with a bipartisan record, and... He's done a lot of work in domestic projects. You can give Bush as primarily foreign policy president, foreign policy experience. He's done a lot of domestic projects, specifically like an, an experimental in-home care for the elderly program, which he had to work on with a lot of Democrats. My thing in here is that like he helps Bush. Again, like the Republican South is still a relatively new thing, and he would help shore up that base, help shore up that part of the map, and kind of counter... Um, what Benson was meant to do for Dukakis. Mm. Given how we know how things played out, maybe that wasn't really necessary. But at the time, there's a compelling case to be made that, like, hey, let's make sure we don't lose these people in the lower half of the map. And I think Cochran is, like, a a generally, like, inoffensive guy to float out there, where he's not going to scare away too many of the swingy voters. I feel like people think of, like, Southern politicians as being, like, very hard right, but he's, like, pretty moderate. And so he's like a pretty inoffensive dude who's got some Southern crap. Bush in this campaign, he, he kind of thinks he needs this like Southern wall strategy. That's like what he's relying on is, is the South, right? But like he doesn't really like need to double down there. Um, as he chose Quayle, mm-hmm. who's not a Southerner. Mm-hmm. Just putting Cochran on the ticket mean you win Mississippi by more points? Like what's, Maybe. Yeah. You know, I think Bush is kind of playing with house money. It's like, what what did, like, Quail give him? I, and, like, maybe great it's probably just a bad comparison to make because, you know, I think the consensus didn't give him anything. But, you know, I, I, I think it's just a... The Republican Party is now officially the party of the South. And let's just make that very clear. And maybe that spills, maybe, you know, that, that helps counter, like, the Benson effect, which really was not a thing. But maybe it helps him more in Missouri, which was closer... Or in West Virginia, which went for Dukakis. You know, maybe it just, it just shores things up. And he's my number five pick for... I, I had a tough time picking the Republican choices. They just felt like they didn't have a very deep bench. They've been in power too long. No one's, like, feisty enough. Yeah. They're all yeah. just kind of waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of mine don't make a ton of geographic sense, actually. Most of them come from pretty uncompetitive states. <laughs> I mean, he won anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyone could be better than Quail. Yeah. Let's put it that way. For number four... I went for Thomas Keene, governor of one Michael Levito's home state, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. He's a moderate but incredibly popular in New Jersey. He's coming off a record-breaking re-election in 1985. I, I think this puts Dukakis on the defense in the Northeast. He's also like environmentally conscious and like a strong education governor. So it 
perhaps like even cuts off Dukakis with liberals and lets Bush kind of realign. Like this is like Bush thinking four dimensionally. It's like, not only do I want to win this election, I want to make sure that Reagan is not the face of this party. We have to like course correct a little bit. So it maybe helps, helps Bush realign the party. And you know, Thomas Keene is definitely a domestic choice. Whereas Bush is definitely more of a foreign policy guy, which is perhaps a great thing to accentuate. Maybe you want to point that out. It's like, I am running because I'm a foreign policy guy. I should be president because that's like most of my job. Mm. Dukakis doesn't know any of that stuff. Mm. But, you know, I have like very qualified people to help me on domestic policy, yada, yada. Who does he have? So I, I chose Keene as my number three pick. He is His family is like a big deal in New Jersey. There's actually a university in New Jersey, Keene University, named after his family. Hmm. I, so I, I call him the, the nega Dukakis. And my point here is that he's like a Northeastern governor who is like not like, you know, you can't cast him as an uber level like Dukakis. So I think it's almost like a look at what you could have, you know, <laughs> instead of... Instead of Dukakis, look at the alternative. Right. But he also has some good record, right? The welfare reform program that he instituted in New Jersey was actually used as a model for the eventual federal welfare reform program mm. uh, in the Clinton years. So he's kind of a pioneer in that, actually. And he divested from South Africa, interestingly enough, which is a thing that, as we noted, Reagan did not do. Mm. So there's actually gives him a little bit of clout with the social liberals there. Obviously, the welfare thing probably hurts him with social liberals. But yeah, if you're going for the kinder, gentler country and party, I think he's he's a good guy to pick. It's a, it's a very big... I'm kind of all over the place. I kind of go back and forth on whether Bush picks someone who leans to the right or someone who leans to the left. But I'm not sure there is a correct answer. Yeah. His, his son is currently the minority leader in the New Jersey Senate. Is he a Republican? Yes. Yeah. I've met him. He's just, it was at just like, so I was in the Boy Scouts, and when, when people get elevated to the rank of eagles, it's a big ceremony, and usually like a local politician comes, hmm. and he came. A freeholder? Uh, he was not a freeholder. He was a member of the state senate. Sorry, I derailed us a little bit there. Cool. You're number four. Four, I had Nancy Kassbaum. She's a senator from Kansas, moderate to liberal. She worked with Ted Kennedy on health care. My thing is she helps run on Republican support in liberal states, and she may give the Republicans an edge in a demographic that may feel overlooked, namely women, right? We've had this history-making ticket in 1984 from Mondale and Ferraro. Why not capitalize on that? I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, like maybe a little bit of a similarity to what's going on now is that there's been kind of like I feel like in the last few months there's been kind of some discussion about the first female president may actually be a Republican, and I think you know it's like well why not make the first female vice president a Republican in this case right? Just another domestic policy choice, pretty uncontroversial, inoffensive except maybe to like the Uber Reaganites. But who else are they going to vote for? <laughs> it's, it's honestly kind of my thinking, right? Yeah. If you're Bush and you really are not that comfortable with sort of the furthest right reaches of the party, it's like who you know screw them. And go for Casabon, I guess. Yeah, I, I actually really like this idea. Uh, I think what you said is totally right. It's like, they're going to vote for Bush anyway. Mm-hmm. Republican voters are, they're less elastic, you know? Mm. And I do think Bush kind of has an opportunity, which he fails on here, to like realign the party a little bit. It's like, maybe he can, you know, we talked about Thomas Keene, it's like, maybe he can save the party and make it a little more like pragmatic in the middle to maybe appeal to some more some voters that it's going to lose over the next, like, 20 to 30 years, right? And I think Nancy Kassbaum helps with that. She's very similar, sort of, to the person I picked as number three, which I'll segue into right now. So I went with Elizabeth Dole of the Banana Company. No. Um, (laughs) She's the wife of the former Senate Majority and, at the time, Senate Minority Leader Bob Dole, uh, and she had served as President Reagan's Secretary of Transportation. She's got North Carolina roots. Um, she later 
become Secretary of Labor under H.W. Bush and a senator from North Carolina in the 2000s, actually. It's kind of what you said with Kassbaum. It's like Bush's goal here is to shore up, you know, his southern firewall with North Carolina, as that was his path to victory. And I think it appeals to demographics that he was less strong with, mostly, like, strong conservatives and women. And I think choosing a woman also shows voters who just saw the Democrats put up their first ever woman on a major party ticket in 1984, the Republicans are determined to match them and are just as appealing. It's like Republicans don't have anything against women. It's just that we weren't, <laughs> we didn't know that was an option yet. No. <laughs> it's like, we don't have anything against women. We're here. Um, you know, the grand old party just got grander and bigger. Please hop on in. We are all inclusive and we love you. But yeah, I, I do think that there is a certain, it's not quite a vindictiveness, but there's a tactful way to be like, yeah, no, we're nominating a woman too. Mm-hmm. I noticed you guys didn't this year. <laughs> I agree. I just think I don't like double dip administration picks. I don't like choosing two people from the same administration, putting them on one ticket because then you are bound to that administration's legacy. And if people didn't like Ronald Reagan, then they're not going to vote for you at all. But the legacy is so strong. It is. It is. Um, if there was one administration every Republican politician right now wishes they were bound to, it's Ronald Reagan, right? That's true. And I was like, like, Department of Transportation, like, I don't mean to put down the people who work there, but it's just like, it's such a, I, I can't imagine she had very high rec- name recognition at the time. She was on the shortlist. She almost got picked. I mean, I, Dan Quayle also probably had, like, no name <laughs> yeah. recognition until he got picked. And, you know, Geraldine Farrar didn't have any name A lot of these people didn't have any name recognition. It's true. Uh, yeah, you, you, the point about double double dipping <laughs> administration picks is good. We don't really see that a lot. Yeah. It's just, like, a thing. I don't know. It's just, it's just like, people were talking about, like, Hillary Clinton picking Julian Castro. And I was like, yeah. I, that just never really made sense to me. But I like what you're saying about the the female candidate. Like we're just like, oh, we noticed you didn't pick, you know, we, you didn't pick one this time. Yeah. You know, what, what's, what's the deal with that? I, I think you get that with Nancy Kassbaum, too, mm-hmm. but more more liberal. Is yeah. she's also Elizabeth Dole's also a play to like the conservatives. Mm-hmm. It's like everything Bush is not. Yeah. <laughs> a woman and conservative. Right. Yeah. Or very conservative. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it'd be interesting, too, because, like, Bob was also considered and yeah. ran in the primary and then lost. And was, like, got, like, very angry at Bush at times during the primary. Like, during a debate, he, got, he, like, lost his calling. He was like, stop lying about me. Like, stop it. <laughs> and so I just, uh, it'd, be, it'd be very interesting. Just, like, dinner in the dull household. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Your number three is Thomas Keene. Yeah. My number two is Dick Thornburg, former governor of Pennsylvania. He was the attorney general for Reagan, a double diff, I'll admit. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the biggest Pennsylvania name you can get without losing a Senate seat at this time. It's a close, very large swing state. We, we talked about him last episode as a, as a possible, like, Reagan wants to dump Bush for him scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was governor during the Three Mile Island incident and was viewed as kind of the only person to handle it well. I, I don't know that I have a lot here. I think it's, it's, it's a regional pick for Bush. Is that is I think having someone from kind of the more northeast Great Lakes region who's more qualified than Dan Quayle and perhaps more competent and like a like a, a well respected governor is just a good good idea. Yeah, so Pennsylvania is just a good state. It's it's just like a very solid pick. You get value with the electoral votes. Right. You get a guy who's like managed a crisis and come up very well and looked kind of bipartisan doing it. Yeah, I guess the double dippiness maybe worries me, but you know. I, I think I think he's probably more known as governor of Pennsylvania than being attorney general. 
Yeah. So yeah, I think this is like I don't really have much to say about this one. Just I, very, very solid. Pick. Yeah, I think he's just a relatively inoffensive pick, which yeah. is better than Quail. Yes, yes. He's also big on like white collar crime and convicted a lot of people during like the savings and loans crisis. So I think there is sort of like a there, there's kind of like a if if you're in the midst of Wall Street and sort of greed obsessed eighties, he's maybe like a nice sort of like counterweight to that. On the Black Monday crash, mm-hmm. like, man, I don't know. Cool. All right. Uh, I want to remind you too of Pete Dupont, governor of Delaware and a scion of the Dupont chemical f- family. He, you know, you think of Delaware, what do you think of now? Aside from being the first state, it's that it's that place where they have like corporations that all belong in like one house because there's like very loose laws on uh, incorporation and um, taxes and things like that. And he's kind of responsible for a lot of that, actually. He and his administration, they said they want to become the financial Luxembourg of America. He reduced income taxes. He took measures against, you know, he kind of like passed laws that prevented other tax raises. He reduced spending in the state. And he kind of helped attract the credit card industry to Delaware a lot as well. So he's definitely a a domestic guy because he's a governor. Balances with foreign policy experience. Kind of like another nega Dukakis, like another. It's like this is the kind of governor you could have instead of like the weak liberal one. And just, like, a little weird, maybe a little bit of a nut, but definitely is, like, very much a true believer in... It seems like a true believer in Reaganomics, right? His whole strategy in governing a state is to basically attract as much business as possible, let the let those markets be free, and just kind of, like, let the money flow in. And I think that I think that could help Bush. It, you're, you're not picking, like, too much of an insidery Reaganite, but you are picking someone who, like, once the Reaganites read about him, will be, like, pretty cool with him. Yeah, Delaware is just a very small state, right? Mm-hmm. Both literally and in the electoral sense. It also went very red for Bush mm-hmm. this year, which is interesting. Your case here is that he's kind of a like a bridge to the more conservatives. Bridge to the conservatives, and I mean, look at the map. It's like Pennsylvania was pretty close, and Delaware is right near Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Like you know, there's a Delaware County in Pennsylvania. Maryland's also. I mean, Maryland's not as big, but it's it was also like light red things like that and i, I think it helped like you know it could help you know i guess Delaware's mid-atlantic and not northeast but it is sort of sort it, it's it's near kind of like important states electorally that that could help them out yeah i don't know, i like the idea of having a governor mm-hmm. on bush's team but yeah mm-hmm. i don't really have a lot against or for pete dupont yeah cool all right number one i went with jack kemp Representative from New York and chair of the House Republican Conference up to 1987. We have talked about him several times on this show, but I think Kemp has potentially several unique advantages for Bush. It's from New York, a state decided by only 4% towards Dukakis. Of course, a very big state to win in the Electoral College. Puts Dukakis on the defensive in the Northeast. And he's a devout Reaganista. He's in both policy and in style. And he's not an administration pick, so no double-dipping here. Exactly. You, you know, he, he's remained in the House on the policy side, so he's, he's removed from, you know, Reagan's kind of later scandals. He's also young, charismatic, and good-looking. He's everything Bush is not. Um, and he ran... <laughs> and he ran in the primary in 1988 as, of course, a conservative alternative to Bush. So maybe Bush uses him to unite the party and set up the logical party successor for Reagan. Like, a Bush-Kemp ticket would effectively unite and represent the full party ideologically, geographically, and stylistically. It's just, like, the perfect political package. Yeah, I picked Kemp, too. I think it's it's kind of a no-brainer. I have no, like, I... it. 
It is a little... He, he would serve in the Bush administration. He, he would be his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. It's beyond me why he wasn't chosen as his running mate and like Quayle was. Mm. I know Quayle is like 12 years younger, but Kemp is still like relatively young. Right. He's 53, which is like not that old in, in politician years. And, you know, he, yeah, he, he is just like a little mini Reagan, I guess. I, I don't really <laughs> see what... <laughs> I, I don't really see what Bush didn't see in Kemp and why they chose not to go with him. I do think sometimes in our sort of, like, modern elections, I think people are, like, squeamish to go with, like, uh, congressmen and congresswomen because I just think their portfolios are seen as being smaller and just name recognition is not as much. Which I agree. Yeah, We, we yeah. haven't gone with a lot. Yeah. But he's been in Congress for, like, 17 years at this point. That's a lot. Chair of the House Republican Conference. Like, he's a leader in the party. Right. And I don't understand. It just it just, it, it, it just it just seems like such an obvious passing of the baton. And Bush could set up potentially, like, like eight... Like, you get eight years of Reagan. You get eight years of Bush. And then you get eight years of Kemp. And yeah. then you get eight years of George W. Bush. <laughs> you could set up just, like, a 20-year string plus mm-hmm. of Republican presidents. Yeah. And I said, and I stand by this, I think if it had been Reagan-Kemp in 1980, I think Kemp wins re-election. Wait, if you think it's Reagan-Kemp in 1980... Yeah, I think <laughs> if it's Reagan-Kemp in 1980... Yes. I think Kemp then runs in 1988 and wins... Re-election in 1992. In okay. I think you could have 16 years of Republican mm-hmm. presidents. Could have been. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think Bush... Like, obviously... <laughs> obviously Bush couldn't. Mm-hmm. Mostly because Kemp would actually not cut taxes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, there haven't been a lot that I felt very strongly. It's like, why on earth didn't you just pick this guy? It's like John Glenn and Kemp. I, I get the Glenn thing a little bit too, because I do think that, just based on what I've read, it just seemed like there was a little bit of reputation where some people think he was a little bit of like just a name. Yeah. And he wasn't, he, it didn't seem like he, he had a lot of pull in the party and, and was maybe just kind of like, just just like a, a figurehead more than like a, a, a like a real like politico. The, the Kemp mm. thing is, spoiler alert here, so Kemp would be selected as Bob Dole's running mate in 1996. I look at that ticket, and it just seems like too little too late for the Republicans at that right. point. Just, like, stuff they've, like, delayed. It, it's like, it just feels like the time, the time, the bloom was off the rose by that point. And yeah. we, we had just been in a place where neither of those people were just very appealing to the electorate. Yeah. If there's, like, one thing we've like discovered on this podcast it's just like there's some just like chronically underchosen people who we mm-hmm. we kind of keep coming back to mm-hmm. if these states of like Benson and Connolly and Kemp and uh, John Glenn would like to talk to us <laughs> <laughs> we're here we <laughs> <laughs> So Dan Creel has, like, the vice presidential, like, museum in Indiana. It's like, we can do, like, a museum of, like, the Running Mates Hall of Fame. We should make that. We should make a Running Mates Hall of Fame. And it'll be Lloyd Benson and John Connolly and Jack Kemp and John Glenn. <laughs> we should. Yeah. Uh, any more on Kemp? <laughs> I think I'm good. I think he's just a good good choice. Um, any trends for our picks uh, for Bush? It's kind of, we're kind of all over the place. We have a more governors for him. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it really matters. I mean, you would argue probably not an administration pick, but I think mm-hmm. if the Reagan administration was popular enough; it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. But I don't think like experience was the problem in the Bush yeah. ticket. Obviously, no. as for who Bush actually considered, thought of a ton of people. Um, some prominent names were George Duke Mejian, 
the governor of California, he did not want to be considered. Jim Thompson, governor of Illinois, he did not want to be considered. Howard Baker did not want to be considered. Bob Dole, Jack Kemp, Elizabeth Dole, Kansas Senator Nancy Kassbaum, former Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander, now a senator, and Clint Eastwood's name also came up. <laughs> it's like going for the cowboy actors. <laughs> it's know, like it worked. It worked in eighteen eighty four, and he was a mayor. He had been a mayor. That's true. Like mayor of Carmel by the Sea, California. All right, speed round. Any any names would have been fun, fun or quirky. I had Lee Hamilton. I think we talked about him briefly. He's the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and the chair of the House Committee investigating Iran Contra. I also had Peter Rodino, uh, who is retiring, a representative from New Jersey, he was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee from seventy three to nineteen eighty nine, which of course covered Watergate. He's also on the committee investigating Iran Contra. Maybe like push something like mm-hmm. Democrats are for justice. Yeah. Remember Nixon? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, make the Republicans the party of corruption. Yeah. I don't know, Republicans, I had Terry Branstad, governor of Iowa. Sandra Day O'Connor's name came up more than once, and it, like, made me think. But it's like, the Democrats just got the Senate back. I don't think you'd risk that, right? No, no. John Ashcroft was almost my number five. He's governor of uh, Missouri. I Yeah, so the one I had, I actually had him as my number five pick for a little bit, was John H. Sununu. Who I mentioned was governor of New Hampshire and gave Bush a big endorsement in New Hampshire, which helped put him over the top during the primary. And then I started reading about him more, and he seemed a little quaily, you know, more competent, but still a little quaily. Um, he's actually the guy who's credited with Bush breaking his no new taxes pledge, which is, I think, is now considered as like a good thing. Like, I think people mostly think that was a good decision, maybe not electorally, but I think from a policy standpoint. But this guy, what, what, what turned me off of him definitely, he was he became Bush's chief of staff, which is when he convinced them to raise taxes. He also recommended that Bush appoint David Souter to the Supreme Court, which I did not realize Souter was a Bush nominee because Souter was basically a liberal on the Supreme Court. And basically, the senator from New Hampshire, Warren Rudman, had convinced Sunu, he's like, oh, you know, you should totally put Suter on the Supreme Court. You know, he's going to be really great. And, like, Sunu was just, like, super gullible and just kind of ate it up, assuming that this guy, Suter, was going to be a conservative and, like, basically was disappointed he was not Antonin Scalia and mm-hmm. that he'd actually became a centrist and then later were a liberal. And just, like, he just, like, was clearly not savvy enough to realize what was happening there. <laughs> so just did not strike me as a guy who, who it would make sense to have on the ticket. Okay. So in conclusion, if you could change the running mate for either of the two candidates, would you? I think definitely for Bush. Yeah, Even for sure. though he wins, you know. It, it's actively concerning that we could have had Quayle as a president. Yes. It's, it's borderline irresponsible, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Benson thing, I'm a little more amenable to because I, I think now that I think about it it's like maybe now is the time where you kind of even those contradicts some of my picks maybe this is maybe this was the time where the Democrats kind of abandoned the ship on the south so the southern thing mm. and may, maybe you do go for more like the northeast the the, the midwest and that that kind of a deal or the west I mean California is, is mm. right around the corner yeah yeah I, I mean definitely I would definitely get rid of quail and I'm, I'm okay with Benson mm. I think I'm okay with that cool well that's our show you can find us everywhere the podcasts are found spotify google podcasts apple podcasts you can find all of our works as always on thepostwriter.com including our running mates portal for all vice presidency related content check out our new updated vp tracker play with your favorite nominees and see who their vice presidential picks should have been in the meantime i've been lars emerson 
And I'm Mike Levito. And we will catch you in our next episode on the 1992 race between H.W. Bush's Vice President Dan Quayle again and the husband of Hillary, Bill Clinton, and his running mate of Tennessee Senator Al Gore. See you soon.